Welcome to the Toa On Air podcast. I am Nico, the founder of Tech Open Air. At Toa, our mission is to help people, organizations, and the planet become future-proof. Our T stands for technology, but it is not features, but the relationship between technology, work, and life that we seek to explore. And we'll give you context around the latest trends so you can make better decisions moving forward. Excited to now present you the following conversation around measuring what matters in impact investing. Defining clear means to measure impact has never been more crucial than now. And it is an honor to host another Leaps Talk with Leaps by Bayer, the impact investment arm of Bayer. The Leaps Talk series was born last year at our physical tour festival in Berlin. The series gathers great minds to discuss the ethical challenges that may arise through biotech innovation and investment. This is a truly important conversation to be having these days, not just in the light of the global pandemic the world has been experiencing. For this Leaps Talk, we were trying a new format, filming the talk in advance in high quality video, followed by a live Q&A with our audience and speakers. I want to thank our thoughtful partners at Leaps by Bayer, our speakers, Mike Viking, CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, and a New York Times bestselling author whose work has been translated into 38 languages. Next to Mike's work in research and advising policymakers around happiness, he also founded the Happiness Museum in Copenhagen. Mike will be joined by Agathe Freiman, general partner at Norskin BC. Agathe has extensive experience in the world of finance and played a pivotal role in raising an impact investment fund of over 100 million euros. She makes an intriguing case for the connection between finance and good. And lastly, I want to thank our moderator Britt Ray, a broadcaster and author researching the social and ethical entanglements of science and technology. After the conversation, I had the honor to host a live Q&A with our virtual audience. I really enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot, and hope you will too. Before we dive into it, here are a few words from our partner, Jürgen Eckert, Head of Leaps by Bayer. Enjoy. Hello and greetings from Zurich. My name is Jürgen Eckert. I'm the Head of Leaps by Bayer. First of all, thanks Nico. It's a great pleasure to continue our collaboration with Tech Open Air. Conversations like this help broaden our thinking about biotech investment and the future. Leaps by Bayer started five years ago with the mission to address 10 huge challenges or leaps that could change the world for better. With over 30 companies and around $1 billion in our portfolio, we look critically at how each new investment can deliver return for humanity, not just return on investment. But how can we measure impact? How can return for humanity become a measurable KPI? This is why I'm looking forward to this Leaps talk today, bringing together two organizations I greatly respect, Norsken and the Happiness Research Institute. It's my pleasure to kick off things by introducing Mike Viking, head of the Happiness Research Institute, a global leader in the compelling world of happiness research and a New York Times bestselling author. So my name is Mike Viking and I run the Happiness Research Institute here in Copenhagen. 
And I know when you hear the Happiness Research Institute, you probably imagine that we spend all day looking at puppies. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, we look at studies, we look at data, we look at evidence. And basically, we try to have a scientific approach to happiness, well-being, and quality of life. So all the work we do here, all our projects, and, and basically my entire career is dedicated to three questions. So first of all, we try to understand how can we measure well-being. Secondly, why is it that some people are happier than others? And thirdly, how can we improve quality of life? And obviously, one way to improve quality of life is to cure diseases. We can see people who are sick are, of course, less happy. But which diseases should we cure first? Imagine we could cure one of two diseases. Imagine you have a red and a blue pill, and the red pill is the cure for Parkinson, and the blue pill is a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Which pill should you develop if you wanted to improve quality of life the most for mankind? So while you think about that, uh, let me give you some good news and some bad news. The good news is that uh, 10 years ago, the UN passed a happiness resolution. So that resolution asks all the countries of the world to focus more on well-being and see what they can do to improve quality of life for citizens. In these years, we're seeing countries doing exactly that. So in New Zealand, the Treasury now evaluates new government policies based on its ability to improve quality of life for its citizens. And we see well-being being put at the core of public policy in countries like the UK, in France, in Japan, in the United Arab Emirates, and of course, famously, Bhutan with their gross national happiness index. We also see agenda-setting organizations moving towards well-being. You have the organization called OECD that now have the Better Life Index. Now, it's an index with 11 indicators. And what is great about this index is that you can go and decide which factors matter most to you. It's classic factors like housing, jobs, education, but also health and life satisfaction. So now more than 100,000 people have gone in and said, what would I prioritize? What matters most to me? And what we can see is what matters most to people is life satisfaction. In the US, it's the top priority. In the UK, it's top priority. In Germany, it's top priority. And it's not just a Western thing. We can see it's also what people matter or matters most to people in Japan, in South Korea, in Nigeria. So it's a global thing. And that study echoes the conversations I've been having with people around happiness for the past 10 years. Um, I see we're all in pursuit of the same thing. Whether we are Danish or Latvian or American, we are first and foremost people. We're all looking for the good life. We're all in pursuit of happiness. And that's not a new thing. Uh, more than 2,000 years ago, the first happiness researcher, Aristotle, said that happiness is the ultimate aim for human existence. And I think that's still true today. Now, the bad news is that we are failing to convert wealth into well-being. We're richer than ever before, but the question is whether we are happier. So GDP levels have gone up, but so have sea levels, stress levels, and the level of inequality. And we are failing to convert wealth into well-being. We have decoupled quality of life from GDP per capita. 
In the US and China, we see GDP per capita levels have gone up in the past 10 years, and we see subjective well-being levels going down in the same period. Now, the country we get most visits from at the Happiness Research Institute is South Korea. South Korea have had a tremendous growth in terms of economic prosperity in the past 50, 60 years. They've gone from one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the richest countries in the world. But they're struggling with converting wealth into well-being. They currently have the highest suicide rate in OECD. So the question is, how do we invest in happiness? How do we secure good conditions for good lives? How do we ensure a happiness return on investment? How do we ensure that we get bang for our buck when we are making impact investments? That's the kind of questions we need to ask as countries, as investors, but also as individuals. So of course, one key question is how do we measure well-being or happiness? Well, first we need to acknowledge that happiness is a wide, complex umbrella term. Agata has one idea of what happiness is, I might have another one. So what we need to do with, with complex umbrella terms is we need to break them down and look at different components. And that's whether we talk about happiness, well-being, quality of life, the good life, to thrive. All of those are complex, wide terms. The same is the American economy. When we talk about the American economy, we also break that down into growth, GDP per capita, inflation, unemployment rate, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the American economy doing. So that's also what we need to do with well-being or happiness. We need to break it down and zoom in on the individual components. So when we measure happiness, we look at an overall life satisfaction. We ask people to take a step back and evaluate their life overall. Are they satisfied with their lives? Uh, if they imagine the worst possible life they could live and the best possible life they could live, where do they feel they stand right now? That's a fairly stable answer people give us. They answer the same on Mondays as they do on Fridays, and it really takes a lot to move the needle on that one. It's different on another dimension, one we call the affective dimension. There we ask people what kind of emotions or what kind of mood they experience on a daily basis. So if you take yesterday, did you feel happy, optimistic, inspired, did you feel loved, or did you feel lonely, stressed, angry, or depressed? Now we can see there's a lot of volatility on that one. And of course, the two dimensions are connected. If you have a lot of everydays with a lot of positive emotions, you probably also report higher levels of life satisfaction, but they're not completely overlapping because you can have a lousy morning and still feel good about your life overall. The third dimension we always capture is a sense of purpose or meaning in life. So that builds on Aristotle's perception of happiness. And to him, the good life was the meaningful life. So we break it down and we look at different components. And then we also acknowledge that happiness is subjective. There's actually only one person here who can tell us whether Agate is happy or not, and that is Agate. It's the same with depression, stress, loneliness. All of those terms are subjective terms. At the end of the day, it comes down to how do we as individuals experience our lives and the world. And then the third thing we do is we follow people over time. We follow large groups of people over time to see what happens with life satisfaction or with our mood when life happens. And when you follow large groups of people over a long period of time, people get married, people get divorced, people get promoted, people get fired. And we try to understand what is the average impact 
from different life events on, for example, life satisfaction. And that brings me to WALI. WALI stands for Well-Being Adjusted Life Years, and it's a new metric we've developed. It's a metric that can measure a happiness return on investment. It's a metric that can predict potential leaps for humankind in terms of happiness. And it's a metric that provides a common currency where we can compare across vastly different investments. So one of the things we've done to develop Wally is we've used large data sets. One data set is called SHARE, the Survey for Health, Aging and Retirement in Europe. It's a huge data set with more than 100,000 people in it, uh, people that are 45 or older, that have been followed for more than 10 years. And because it's such a large group of seniors followed over 10 years, people get sick. People are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, with different forms of cancer, with depression, with Parkinson. So one woman who got diagnosed in the course of the study, let's call her Kathy, she was in her 50s, and usually she reported 9 or 10 when she was asked how satisfied with life she was. Suddenly she gets diagnosed with Parkinson, and she drops to 5 on a scale from 0 to 10 in terms of life satisfaction. Now, Kathy is just one of 2,500 in one study that is diagnosed with Parkinson. That means we can start to see what is the average impact from being diagnosed with Parkinson on life satisfaction. What is the actual experience of a patient? And this is actually key in the new metric. We build it on people's experiences. Not what we think it's like to have Parkinson or to sit in a wheelchair, but what is it actually like? What is the experience of the patient? And we can actually also go beyond the patient because we can see in some data sets who are married to who. That means we can start to see what is the average impact on your life satisfaction if your partner is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. We can also go beyond health because we can actually start to predict what would be the average impact on life satisfaction if we reduced air pollution in Paris to zero. And because we are building this on life satisfaction, we can use that as a common currency. We can start to compare what would be the average impact on life satisfaction if we reduced air pollution in Paris compared to finding a cure for Parkinson. So my hope is that we will start building this in into impact investment. My hope is that we will start measuring what is the potential gain in happiness for each of the 17 SDGs. And my hope is that we will start measuring things in terms of a happiness return on investment. Because we know that what we measure matters, so my hope is that we start to measure what matters. And delivering the second lighting talk will be Agathe Freimane, coming directly to us from Stockholm. Now, Agathe is general partner at Norskin VC, which is Europe's largest impact venture capital fund with over 100 million euros and 23 companies innovating business models in health, climate change, and more. She has started her career in finance, but eventually ventured into the startup world by building and investing in early stage startups. Welcome, Agathe. Thank you so much, Mick, for that warm introduction. And it's now my pleasure to take you deeper into the topic of impact investing. If we look at data like child mortality, poverty, illiteracy, 
then we have a really good reason to be very optimistic about the current state of the world, because all of these measures have dramatically improved over the last three decades. But as Make alluded to, we're not quite happy. Today, it's difficult to open a newspaper without feeling a that we live in a state of emergency. We're constantly faced with headlines like climate crises, political polarization, skyrocketing healthcare costs. Today, more people die from obesity than from starvation, and mental health issues are at all-time record high. At Norsken, we believe that our best bet to solve some of these big and hard problems are entrepreneurs. And not only that, we truly believe that the companies solving some of the world's biggest challenges will also be the most valuable companies of tomorrow. Us as a society, we live in a complex world and we like to simplify things. And sometimes to simplify things, we put them in certain frames and boxes, but those can sometimes be unhelpful and false. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, you can have fast food or healthy food. You can't have both. You can either drive a fun car or an eco-friendly car. You can't have both. And unfortunately, when it comes to impact investing, it has also sometimes fallen the victim of this false binary framing. You can either make money or you can save the world. But that is no longer true. We believe that the most valuable companies of tomorrow will be the ones solving global challenges. And there is a lot of data to back that up, that we're moving away from the profit-only model to the profit-plus impact model, or what we call the 2.0. And I could share a lot of data, but today I'll dive into the biggest and most powerful source of this change. And it's millennials. Millennials account for more than half of our workforce in Europe and the US. And they're not happy with business as usual anymore. An extensive study done by Deloitte interviewing millennials across 27 countries all around the world asked them, what is the purpose of business? 47% of the respondents said that the purpose of the business is to improve society and help us fight climate change. Or a staggering 87% of the respondents said that business performance should be measured in more than just financial returns. And if that's not enough, another different study said that 83% of MBA graduates would be willing to take a 15% pay cut in order to work for purpose-driven companies. I think you're starting to see the trend here. And that's the reason why we believe that purpose-driven companies have a real competitive advantage today. Millennials vote with their wallets every single day, but the companies are made out of people. They're made out of the talent. So if these companies can attract the best and brightest minds, they stand the chance to also be the best companies. So we at Norskin try to accelerate this trend by backing early stage entrepreneurs that are working on true innovations that can, can have a massive positive social and environmental impact. History tells us that it's the entrepreneurs, innovate, innovators and creators that are the source of the true breakthroughs that leapfrog us into the next age. I mean, just think about the Wright brothers who invented airplanes. I would love to know how many times they were told that what they're doing is impossible. But we need that kind of relentless 
passion to really go into uncharted territories and be willing to prove that you can do something that hasn't been done before. But at the same time, corporates that are held responsible in front of their shareholders or NGOs, they're not well placed to take these bold, risky bets because for everyone that succeeds, so many more fail. As an early stage investor, we know the odds. We know that more than half of the ideas that we back will fail completely. And in the best case scenario, one out of 10 will succeed and scale globally. But for us, that's enough. That one out of 10 will way make up for the losses and more to really make it worthwhile pursuing this. And we need that kind of risk-taking when it comes to impact investing to find the next breakthrough solution. We also massively believe in the power of technology to be part of that solution. The average smartphone that you have in your pocket today is more powerful than the computer that took the first man to the moon. So if a smartphone can place a man on the moon, imagine what else it can do. So instead of creating another photo sharing app, we should be using the power of technology to lower the cost of healthcare or education to make it accessible to everyone all around the world. Which is why we try to find companies that have positive impact at the very core of the business model. Make talked a lot about the importance of measuring things. When we look for opportunities, we want to make sure that the impact is so intertwined in the core of the business model that you can't separate the two that for every unit of revenue that this company makes, they're also creating a unit of positive impact. Let me give you an example. One company that we have backed is called Ignitia. There are one billion small-scale farmers that live around the equator. Their livelihoods depend on their yearly harvests. However, if you manage to plant or harvest at the wrong time, you could lose your family's income for the whole year. What we don't know is that the weather forecasts for these regions are not reliable. So we backed a Swedish company that has come up with a weather forecast algorithm that is more than twice as accurate than the next best thing. How are they creating that into a business? Well, they're selling their weather forecast through text messages directly to these farmers. And as a result, these farmers are able to significantly improve their yields. They're able to bring more family at home and let that create a multiplier effect when it comes to impact. And if we look deeper at how to measure things, the framework that we use is something that we call theory of change. And I'll take one example that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, and that's Tesla. How would we measure the positive impact of Tesla? Well, first of all, we could look at the short term and the long term. So in the short term, we could say that for every car that Tesla sells, they're replacing a car that otherwise would have run on petrol or diesel. So we can accumulate what that means in terms of saved CO2 emissions. But that's the short term. The true real impact of companies like Tesla is that today, every major automaker in the world is rolling out their electric fleets. And that's what we're after. We're looking after the companies that are creating immediate measurable impact, but at the same time, they stand the chance to create a systematic change, resetting us to the new normal. And if there is one takeaway that I want you to have after this talk is that entrepreneurs are problem solvers. At any given point in time, they have jumped at the biggest problem that they want to solve.
If 10 years ago that was how to make our online shopping more efficient, then today it's hard to shy away from bigger challenges than climate change. And entrepreneurs will do everything to solve these challenges. And next up, it's my pleasure to welcome our fantastic moderator into this conversation, uh, Britt Ray, who's currently based in San Francisco Bay Area. She has a PhD in science communications from University of Copenhagen. And today she's a broadcaster and author researching the social and ethical entanglements of science and technology. Thank you so much, Agate. It's an honor to be here with you and Mike today in order to dive deeper into how we can measure impact as well as hold it accountable when there's so much at stake for people in the planet. So let's kick things off with that concept you mentioned of capitalism 2.0. I'd love to know how it differs from earlier models of impact investment as well as classical venture capitalism. Well, historically, impact investing was sort of almost reserved only to the philanthropy segment of the market that you were willing to give away money in order to generate some kind of positive uh, impact in, in the world. However, that has changed and to really move the needle and move trillions of dollars of capital, we need the main capital allocators to participate. We need our pension savings or insurance premiums to go into impact investing. And the only way we can do that is, again, by proving that it's not a false binary, that you can generate strong financial returns while creating positive impact. So that's the key that has changed, that now the idea that the main financial markets can participate in impact investing is slowly starting to catch on. But we're just at the very, very beginning of this trend. And to your second question, how does it differ from traditional venture capital? A lot of things are similar, but impact due diligence is one additional layer that we evaluate when we look at the companies. And so is the case that sometimes some venture capitalists, even 20 years ago, maybe accidentally invested in impact um, companies. But what's new is this emergence of dedicated impact private equity or venture capital funds. And that has only happened in the last couple of years. Are there any consistent metrics that impact investors are using in order to track capitalism 2.0? I mean, this, I imagine, would be quite difficult. So what are some of the challenges to doing something like that? That's one of the main topics around impact investing today, is how can we have a measurement framework that really works for everyone and can be used for everyone so that we have some kind of standardized framework. But the truth is that it's fairly complex. There are a lot of different uh, frameworks out there. And depending on what's your investment strategy or what stage do you invest, are you an early stage investor or a late stage investor, the, the framework that you will use will differ greatly. So unfortunately today it's still extremely, extremely fragmented. At the same time, the good news is that it's a topic that is talked a lot about. A lot of different thought leadership groups are being brought together to really drive it into some kind of streamlined framework. But it's still going to take a lot of work to end up there. And Mike, in your institute's recent report, you talk about how the sustainable development goals have become this common currency for measuring impact. Now, what do you see as the main features and drawbacks of that framework? Yeah, I think the SDGs could become a common currency. I think right now we actually have 17 different uh, currency. Uh, I, I would hope that we would find some sort of overarching 
metric that we can hold the different SDGs up against. I think we're seeing with the SDGs the same thing that, that Agata was just describing in, in impact investing, that it's very fragmented. Uh, there are different metrics, and, and I think we need a, a unifier. I think we need a common currency that can sort of bridge uh, the, 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 the different goals we currently have. We have goals, but we don't have sustainable development priorities. Okay, so in terms of getting a common metric that we can apply to measuring um, well-being, your institute, the Happiness Research Institute, has come up with this particular measure, the WALL-E, which you mentioned. How is the uh, investment and business community responding to the WALL-E, and how are they letting you know that it's affecting their thinking? Right, there is a great interest in uh, well-being adjusted life years, also because the investment community is seeing what is happening with the uh, policy-making uh, community. So earlier on, I, I mentioned um, OECD and their, their Better Life uh, Index. Uh, actually, earlier today, two of my colleagues spoke with uh, OECD who are setting up a center on well-being and they've evaluated now uh, 29 of the 37 uh, membership countries in, in, in OECD are now actually working with some sort of well-being metric or well-being uh, statistics and I think the, the investment community understands that this will trickle down when there are policy uh, in place uh, that will trickle down to the investment community because there will be set up regulations that will affect uh, the markets. I think we'll see with well-being the same things we've seen with sustainability and climate change, that there are uh, regulations being put in place that will have an effect on, uh, on, on companies, on markets and on investments. And Agate, when you take a step back and dream big about your work as an impact investor, what are some of the tools that you wish you had but do not yet in order to help you make wiser and better decisions about the companies that you're investing in? And when you consider those, who do you think needs to be involved in creating them in terms of the stakeholders that are influencing this? That's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, a really good starting point would be if we sort of united behind one framework that the industry could use. But it needs to be flexible enough so that every investor or startup or another stakeholder can kind of adopt it to their own needs. But a good starting point would be at least that we have the same starting point. The second dream come true would be if impact companies made the, their impact data public. Then we could go into the area what Make was talking about in his speech, where you can really look into the capital efficiency. For every dollar that I invest, which company yields me higher CO2 emission savings and be able to compare it across different kind of variables. And probably third, wish on my list would be also tools that make it easier for the startups to to report because the reality that we're dealing with especially you know coming from the angle of backing really early stage startups they're always understaffed they always have their plates full and they really need easy ways to get access to their impact data so if there were any tools that helped them create their data easier that would also be incredibly useful and to your last question in terms of the stakeholders and actors, you need absolutely everyone involved. You need the funds, the institutional investors, the startups, the clients, every single stakeholder. Those are great ideas. Thank you. 
Mike, what do you think that investors can do to help ensure that the companies they pour money into are accountable to their impact for a positive societal and environmental benefit, not just at the point of investment, but really in the long run? How can we make this durable over time? I think the best thing we can do is secure independent uh, longitudinal studies where we follow people over time to see that this is not just a short-term impact that uh, companies or technologies or solutions are creating, but we're actually seeing this long-term and also that it's coming from an independent data source. Um, obviously, companies have a, a self-interest in, in saying, listen, guys, we are uh, delivering happiness. Uh, I think that's the, the ultimate promise of uh, a lot of companies. Uh, but, but, but we need to have that from an independent source that, that follows uh, people over time. If I can just add one thing to, to, to what uh, Agata mentioned earlier in, in her talk, which I thought was, uh, was really, really interesting, the, the point around... Um, MBAs being willing to work uh, for a, a, a smaller salary uh, if they're working for a company that is, is purpose-driven. Purpose um, we can also see when we look at what drives job satisfaction. Uh, if we look at your relationship with your boss, if your, your relationship with your colleagues, um, sense of purpose, um, uh, sense of mastery, and, and a lot of different factors, when we look in Denmark and also in, in, in Norway, where we've done similar studies, we can see the key predictor of whether people are satisfied with their jobs is whether they have a sense of purpose and meaning in their work. Uh, it's uh, on, on top of the list uh, every, week, every year we, we do this study. So, so people will not only uh, work uh, you know, more, uh, actually for, for less, but they also have a, a larger sense of, of job satisfaction if they work for, for companies that are, are driven by purpose. The COVID-19 pandemic has stimulated greater interest in sustainable portfolios as nations and societies try to build back better. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any trends for this that relate to impact that the pandemic has amplified that you're excited about. Yeah, great, uh, great question. Uh, we really think that pandemic has sort of shown shown impact investing in, in new lights. And I have to take sort of a step back of how do we look at startups? We sort of classify startups in two buckets. There are the painkillers. Those are the startups that are solving real pain that you feel every day unless you take your painkiller. And then there are the vitamins, the nice to haves. You know, it's good to take your vitamins, but if you forget to take it on any given day, you're not gonna feel the real pain. When it comes to impact investing, these startups are addressing real, real pain points. And when it comes to economic downturns, what are you going to cut first? If you have to pay, make personal budget choices, or if you're a big corporate who has to decide where to make your budget cuts, are you going to go, first go for the vitamins or the painkillers? The likelihood is that you're probably going to first go for the vitamins, which basically implies that impact investing is a lot more resilient. And we've already seen it firsthand on our portfolio. To, to be very honest with you, when we went into the corona pandemic, we were expecting to see much worse results. And, and we've been positively surprised to see the resilience of the startups in our portfolio. And I truly believe that one of those reasons is because those startups are painkillers and not vitamins for, the, for those that they serve. 
Can you give us an example of what one of those core painkillers is in terms of how a company actually implements it right now? There are many examples across all the different industries. Um, I mean, I can give you one example of a recent company that we have invested in. So data is exploding all around the world. It's growing exponentially. And that also means that we have bigger demand for physical data centers. But the environmental footprint of the whole data center center industry is growing at an alarming rate. And it's now almost on par with the whole airline industry. So we need better solutions. Um, We recently backed a company that makes data center cooling a lot more efficient, cuts CO2 emissions by 50%, saves 99% of the water versus the next best thing, saves 85% of the space. That's a real painkiller because you're solving someone's pain point first in terms of cost, but two also in terms of environmental footprint. So if you had to make budget cuts, it's very unlikely that this is the solution that you're gonna cut out of your company purchases. And Mike, how about in the impact measurement space? Have you noticed any trends since the corona pandemic has set in that's changing the way people are thinking about doing that work? Yeah, I think one of the main changes we are seeing is a return to to sort of the original definition of health that uh, the WHO put forward in, in, in I think, 48, uh, that health is not just the absence of disease, but it's, it's for mental, physical, and social well-being. I think the social aspect, the mental aspect, have been overlooked in decades, but I think that the current pandemic has shown us the importance of connecting with other people, of not being isolated socially, and, and also how uh, mental health is a, a key driver in, in our overall uh, well-being. So there's, a, I think, big discussion around that, how we weigh the different dimensions. And I think um, there is a, a change, especially, I think, in Denmark and a, a, in, in that regard, and a questioning of how we measure um, and evaluate um, different treatments. Um, I think we've been overlooking and not valuing enough the social and mental aspects when we are looking at at different treatment options, for instance. Something I find really fascinating with your work, Mike, is that you quantify subjective well-being, which is a very difficult thing to be able to hone in on in a quantifiable way. And then, you know, it raises the question, what is non-subjective well-being? Is there any such thing as objective well-being? And is that something that we need to consider when we're making huge decisions for populations about what it means to invest in services and products that will affect their lives? So you're right. I mean, my, my work is you know, doing what Galileo Galilei talked about, you know, measure the measurable and make uh, the unmeasurable measurable. We are trying to quantify really subjective, tricky phenomenons. Um, But we can also see that the subjective well-being metrics connect with objective metrics, uh, as you described. So we see our subjective well-being metrics are predictive of mortality. So, for example, in the UK, they have a study where uh, 8,000 seniors have been followed over five years. And we can see in the happier part of the sample, 
there's simply a lower mortality rate also when we control for health status in the beginning of the study. Um, we can also see uh, subjective well-being levels are predictive of suicidal behavior. There is a large Finnish study uh, where uh, 30,000 people were followed over several decades. And also when you control for socioeconomics and, and gender and all sorts of different predictors of, of suicide, there's a seven time greater risk of suicide among the ones that state uh, they are unhappy. Uh, so, so we do see a lot of connections between the objective metrics and uh, the subjective ones. Agate, what makes you most hopeful at this point in terms of how you're seeing the impact investment field mature? It's a great question. Um, I think what gives me a lot of encouragement and hope is going back to the point that I really see that impact investing is slowly becoming mainstream. I think it's becoming more understood, but also there are more and more market participants that want to invest in impact investing. We were extremely pleased to see that uh, some of the investors in our fund were pension funds and insurance companies who are return driven, but that the message resonates with them that you actually can create financial returns while creating positive impact. And, and I really think that this is a trend that's only going to accelerate for the years to come. Thank you both so much for an enlightening and, as I feel, hopeful talk about what we can do with these tools and the impact investment field as we try to address some of society's biggest problems. And now, the audience, I'd like to invite you to the live Q&A session. Hi, everyone. My name is Nico. I'm the founder of Tor, and I'm happy to guide you through the live Q&A part of this conversation. First of all, I want to thank Agati, Britt, and Mike for the pre-recorded and very insightful conversation. I want to thank everybody who was involved in the production. This was actually shot in three different uh, countries. So thanks for doing that and the hard work that uh, went into it. So without further ado, Mike and Agati, please join our virtual live stage. There's Agati. Hello. Hi. Great to see you all. Good to see you. Um, so first question, um, maybe to both of you, um, Mike talked about the OECD Better Life Index, uh, and he mentioned, uh, you know, there were a few criteria um, or topics that were covered by the index. And I saw that next to life uh, satisfaction, um, we also saw the topic of community playing a big part in uh, sort of the tracking here. Um, so I was wondering, what makes a community become a driver for well-being and impact for the two of you in your work? Agaza, do you want to go first? Sure, why not? No, I mean, first of all, I can say that uh, there is huge, huge power in community. And, and I mean, we are an early stage investor. And from what we have seen, that we have basically seen companies being built just by the power of community. I can give you one example, a company we backed, Olio. Uh, they've created this whole community and movement that tries to fight uh, food waste. And it's incredibly powerful. And I think you know how to fire up community is, is is to is to really have a shared goal, shared passion, and and most importantly, shared enemy. Uh, I, I I can't remember where I read it, but you know the, the most powerful thing is to actually the most powerful fire you can have is if you have a common enemy and let that common enemy be. In this case, it's food waste, uh, but we can of course pick the right enemies and then unite uh, behind those. <laughs> And I would I would say for for us at the Happiness Research Institute, it's it's a key component. We are always 
finding in happiness data, whether we look at local, national, or international data, a sense of community is key to happiness. It is key to good life uh, or the good life, whether you look at overall life satisfaction, whether you look at sense of purpose, whether you look at what kind of emotions we experience on a daily basis. Um, so often it's the very best predictor of whether people are happy or not. Uh, do they have a sense of connection with other people? Are they part of a community? Is there somebody they can rely on in times of need? Um, if we can't ask people directly how happy they are with life or how satisfied they are with life, I would ask them questions about uh, that sense of community, community because it would give me a pretty good indicator of where they are on, on a happiness scale. So, so for us, it's, it's, it's key. Um, um, it's also an area where we basically need more solutions. Um, so, so we can see, for example, loneliness, there's a massive burden uh, or happiness burden uh, uh, stemming from loneliness. But right now we don't have a lot of evidence-based interventions on what to do for reducing loneliness. Uh, so, so, so that's an, an area I'm, I'm, I'm really, really interested in uh, exploring more. And Mike, with happiness being very subjective, what value do you contribute to this formula that went viral, I think, years ago um, of happiness equals reality minus expectation, which seems to be in line also with a lot of Eastern philosophy. To what degree can we hack our happiness uh, by keeping our expectations low? Uh, <laughs> um, so, but I, I think it's a double-edged sword. I, th I think the, I mean, having great expectations is is wonderful. And it, it, it's why we're sitting here today, you know, across so many different countries. It is, it is what has pushed us forward, I think, as a, as a human race, our ability to dream big and, and, and create the unimaginable. Um, and we also see that people are optimists. When we ask them, how happy they are with life now and how happy they expect to be five years from now, most people expect to be happier in the future than they are today, which is, which is great. Um, on the other side, or on the other hand, we, we also we see something called the hedonic treadmill in uh, happiness research, which is the unfortunate mechanism we have as humans to constantly raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. Um, it might be a salary level or a title or the size of our homes. We expect once we get to that level, then we'll be happy. And then we might achieve that and we might be happy for a while, but then we set a new goal. Um, so so I'm, I'm afraid there is no one thing, no one accomplishment that is going to make us permanently happy. Um, do you try it for yourself? Do you try to sort of sometimes just take a step back and keep your expectations low and be like, Mike, you know no, better? No, <laughs> no, because I, I, I don't think that's the, honestly, I don't think that's the, the key to happiness. I don't believe in keeping expectations low. I, I, I believe in having great dreams and great ambitions, but I'm also a big fan of knowing that once I, I reach that ambition or once I reach that goal, I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm going to be happy 
with that for a week or a month or six months or a year, and then I'm going to have another big, uh, big dream. So, mm -hmm. so, so I think coming to terms with the notion that there is no one thing that is going to make me permanently happy, whatever I achieve, um, helps me not to lower my expectations, also, also make sure that I enjoy the journey towards that goal. Mm -hmm. I got you. Uh, you said that corporates were not very well placed to take the necessary bets. And we see this with um, also data on the S&P 500, for example, the average lifespan of a company is just 60 years. Um, so what can large public companies do, you think, to improve their odds of survival, given that the uh, change is accelerating in speed and also in complexity? Oh, it's, uh, uh, I guess, a, a, a big question. And, and I mean, for every big corporate, the, the key is how do I stay relevant in the long term? And it's always about balancing the short term and long term and making sure that you don't miss the next uh, big trend. But what can corporates do today to, to at least, uh, I guess, uh, power the engine that drives them? And that engine is, in the end of the day, the employers that they have. Then it goes back to really not seeing uh, your employees just, just purely as a resource, as, as seeing them as individual beings and understanding what drives them and what motivates them and, and, and apply that daily. And, and, and if you, again, if, if you feed the right fuel to your employees, uh, you, you maximize your chances of the long-term survival. Mm -hmm. Mike, uh, first question from the audience, Jenny, and thank you, Jenny and Imam, um, for your first questions. And to everybody else, please uh, feel free to just type in to any of the chats and they will be forwarded to us at the backstage. Um, so, Mike, first question from Jenny. Is there work occurring looking at mental health issues relating to COVID-19 as there are many reports of neuropsychiatric side effects of having had COVID? Um, and what is the Happiness Institute looking at evidence in this area? Mm. Yeah, so, so obviously that's a big topic right now. Um, we actually uh, did a study during the first wave of the uh, pandemic uh, in, in, in the spring with around uh, three or 4,000 participants um, in six waves. So I think we went from uh, early April to June and looked at or followed the participants uh, over time to see how the pandemic impacted their their well-being on, on different dimensions. Um, to be honest, I don't think we needed large data sets and a group of happiness researchers to understand that the pandemic have had negative effects on well-being. Of course, we are concerned about the health, uh, our health, the health of our families. Um, we're concerned about job security. Um, we're concerned about a lot of things, um, and, and that have had a, a negative effect on, uh, on, on, on well-being. We're also seeing the impact of social isolation uh, on, on people's well-being. Mm -hmm. um, but what we also wanted to do with the study was to, to look at what kind of activities, what kind of behaviors seems to mitigate these negative effects uh, on, uh, on well-being. And we actually just uh, published a report, uh, I think it was uh, last month, with the results, with also ideas on what people can do to, to sort of uh, lift the, the, the spirits uh, during uh, the, the pandemic. Um, so, so yes, there is um, data and, and studies out there. We've done some, but I know there's a lot of other good people uh, working in the same field. 
Speaking of reports, a uh, little service announcement. There is actually a great report also that uh, you have produced together with our partner Leaps by Bayer, uh, and we will be sharing this um, in all of the, the channels. Uh, Agati, um, a question from, well, there's two questions I think for you. Let's start with Imam. How can you measure sustainable return of investment, SROI, um, based on social economy and culture? And as an example, in Indonesia, we already make smart, smart agriculture projects, such as farmers' empowerment. The business is running, but I don't know how to measure sustainability return on investment. If we just talk about ROI, we already done to make it happen, but in SROI, we need more insights to measure these projects. Any tips for Imam? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of startups are asking themselves that question. And 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 uh, what happens in our line of business is being an impact investor. We're often we sometimes approach startups and saying that you're a fantastic impact company, and entrepreneurs turn around and say that I don't realize that I'm an, I'm an impact company. I don't know how to measure my impact. And unfortunately, there is uh, no kind of one size fits all answer. As as we alluded to in in the Q and A uh, following the the talks, was that you know, there is today no one universal framework that, that is wildlife by all the stakeholders. Um, uh, but I would say that the, the key to to find uh, uh, to, to find local impact investors or local organizations that you can that can help you build your own framework and help you really go through your business and identify it. That's some of the work that we do with with the companies that we back in. So I guess my top tip would be. Um, search out for the people who can who can really uh, do a workshop with you and, and go through that exercise because absolutely if uh, there must be a way to measure the social return on on your company thanks agate mike um the next question um i'll direct towards you but if you want to add something also um to impact um measurement for um, for imam please feel free to do so next question uh, from slaven is is there a way to dynamically continuously or at least in short intervals instead of statistically continuously measure happiness for example biomarkers psychometrics is the analysis dependent on statistics or can it be conducted also on an individual level yeah so there are pioneering pioneering work being done um, for example by using uh, people's phones to detect um, uh, voice, the voice levels or facial emotional recognition. So it's 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 still early stage, um, and it's it's still first generation. But now there are different um, apps and technologies that can read my face and 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 guess whether I'm happy or not, or whether I'm angry or whether I'm surprised or depressed. Um, it's still first generation, so if I, if I show my teeth, uh, it will think I'm smiling and it, it will interpret that as being happy. And of course, that, that is not necessarily the case. There are different cultural interpretations of what, a, what smiling is, and it, in, 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 in most places, it's a, it's a form of communication. But I think five, perhaps 10 years down the road, my phone is going to know whether I'm depressed or not. Um, I could imagine that we could even see sort of um, early prevention or um, suicide prevention 
if I have not uh, taken calls from my parents and friends for the past month, if I've, um, you know, if my phone knows I have not been active, I've been in my apartment all day, I've Googled um, suicide methods, and then suddenly head out to a, a large bridge in, in Copenhagen, of course, my phone will know what is actually going on. The question is, you know, should it then make a distress call to my to my close ones? That that's a kind of, of, of ethical moral question we need we need to solve. But I think in in the very short term we're gonna have technologies uh, that can without me telling directly how I feel, actually know uh, how I feel. Mm -hmm. Great questions. Uh, Agathe, sorry. Um, no, I, I almost, I don't know if I'm allowed, but I even... No, of course, of course. No, 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 let's make this interactive. Let's <laughs> no, make this really interactive. Megan, since you're the expert on happiness, I mean, do you think that, you know, relying on the, you know, we anyway, more and more, we're relying on technology. And, and you know, in the future, if we could truly rely on the technology to tell us when we're depressed or not, are we removing the responsibility from the society, from the community to check up on each other? And are we going to lose out on that uh, closeness if we sort of outsource all of this to what used to, you know, would be the job of your best friends to, to know when, when, when you're, you know, close to the SOS signal. And now we're kind of outsourcing that to, to phone. What do you think that's ultimately going to do to our long-term happiness? Is it going to improve it or decrease it? <laughs> I, I hope that it's not going to crowd out the interpersonal mechanisms that, that exist. Mm -hmm. um, um, hopefully it's going to remind me that, my phone is going to remind me that every time uh, you call Nikolai or Christian, you're happier. Or you haven't seen Michael for a month. Um, should I, should I uh, um, why, why don't I text him uh, to see whether he's free on, on, on Saturday for coffee down by the canals in Copenhagen? Um, hopefully, you know, it will help me uh, and, and, and not crowd out uh, sort of the, the interpersonal things. By the way, great questions, everyone. Uh, in some of them, you know, almost very complex. Uh, so please don't be discouraged if you read all these smart questions. Uh, we take any question uh, that is interesting. So just keep them coming. Um, we have one question, Agate, uh, from Jeremias um, around investing. Do you find active or passive types of impact investing more useful and effective outside of the field of venture capital? or even a hybrid of both related to a passive strategy, are there ETFs that come close to your standards? Yeah, no, I think uh, market needs both. You need both active investors and passive investors, and, and, and those two serve very different uh, roles. Um, speaking of more kind of passive investors, how we as a, you know, your average uh, person could could invest our savings or pension fund savings into more sustain, sustainable uh, stock holdings. It's, it's an incredibly exciting field, uh, one that we're also tracking as an impact investor, because there is a lot of research that actually by investing more sustainably, we can have a lot of impact on what actually happens on the ground on the underlying uh, level. Um, at the same time, uh, there still are not enough solutions. And, and there is, uh, I, I don't know, you're missing if you're an entrepreneur or just generally interested in, uh, but that's also one space that's still up to up for grabs to actually make sustainable investments. 
investing easier for for everyone, even as a, as a passive investor, because you absolutely need both. You need the active hands-on investors, but you also need a lot of passive investors because that's where you really move the trillions of dollars of capital, the pension funds, the insurance, uh, savings, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess somewhat related to this is a comment by Nadim that I'm going to read out and sort of frame maybe into an open question uh, to mm. both of you. Uh, Nadim says there's a need to get entrepreneurs to look at their STGs as a system from the outset. With 169 targets and 220 plus indicators, there's need to reduce complexity while acknowledging it and finding a way to deal with it. Are there any tips or resources that you've uh, found useful in reducing the complexity around the SDGs specifically? Or I, I'd say start, it, it, it's, it's again, it's this uh, balance between the top down and bottom up uh, approach. And, and we see two types of entrepreneurs. We see the ones that have never even come across the UN SDGs, yet they happen to start an impact company because as I alluded to in my speech earlier, you know, right now the biggest problems also equal the biggest opportunity. And since climate change is in every headline that we read, naturally you have a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to solve that. But you definitely also have the top-down entrepreneurs that are looking at the UN SDGs and saying, okay, where can I make a difference? And I would say that as, as, as you said, that each SDG has a lot of underlying points, but don't overcomplicate it for yourself. Uh, for yourself, you know, start from the big picture, pick one SDG, and 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 really try to think with your skills and experience and background, etc. What can I really do? Like, how can I create a business that's, that that both is profitable but also contributes uh, somehow to to achieving that one specific uh, SDG? Yeah, I, I would echo what, what Agatha says. I mean, find out what, what you're passionate about within the SDG framework. Um, you're going to work um, best if it's something you're, you're passionate about. So, so start with that. Try to solve one of the, the challenges outlined by, by the UN. Um, and I think that's where you'll do the best work. That's where you'll be most successful uh, also. And one question maybe related from my side to this. Is there... I guess life satisfaction for you, Mike, is sort of a maybe a binding criteria for these SDGs. Would you agree to that? And are there others that maybe people can also use as a North Star for maybe being, you know, safe on tackling uh, maybe a few and having impact in, in various fields? I think it would make good sense to use well-being, happiness, life satisfaction as an overarching umbrella for the SDGs. Um, and, and, and as I talked about in, 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 in the speech before, as, as a common currency where we can evaluate between the different AGGs and also help us create priorities. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think putting well-being at the top of, of what we are trying to achieve would, would be a tremendous step forward uh, uh, as I see it. I'm also, I'm also really glad. Are I, you biased I, in any way? I am, completely, I am completely biased. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's also what I hear people um, in demand of. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is what people are ultimately seeking. It is the good life. It is well-being. It is quality of life. So why not put our efforts towards making the best possible conditions for good lives? Um, and I was really encouraged earlier, um, I heard today that, uh, again, some of my colleagues have been talking with the OECD, their hope is now that we put 
a question on life satisfaction into every survey that is distributed. Mm. That will help us gain tremendous insight in which interventions, which policies, which technologies, which solutions, which ways of designing cities actually have the biggest impact on, 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 on life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, so, so um, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, Agati, um, one question uh, from my side also is you, you talk about companies that have a positive impact, right, at the core of uh, sort of the business model. How do you vet a company and maybe also a founder to make sure um, that it's not just a noble mission where then maybe um, the wrong means uh, are being sort of justified, as we may have seen with companies such as WeWork, for example, uh, and what responsibility do venture capitalists also need to take? Um, in the example of WeWork, we just read in this long piece of, of uh, New Yorker how um, VCs that sat on the board had actually known and um, sort of behind the scenes talked about uh, the problems uh, that they saw, but never really stepped up um, and sort of just green-lighted um, a lot of the decisions that um, led to this kind of behavior. So. Um, yeah, how, how do you vet and, and what do you think is the role of, of the venture capitalist? Yeah, no, I, I, I think the responsibility up on our shoulders as an impact venture capitalist is absolutely huge because we're really the first generation of impact VCs. And, and what we need to prove is that we, we are truly true uh, at our mission. If we fail at achieving uh, what we say that we do, that we can generate both financial returns as, a, as well as very strong impact, the impact field as such could disappear in 10 years from now if people realize that, ah, oh, that all talk about the combining profits and impact that was just greenwashing, impact washing, it's not real. Let's all go back to the traditional VC. So the responsibility that we feel every single day in our jobs is huge. And, and, that, uh, and that kind of translates into being extremely disciplined and strict about how we assess the impact of the company. And it goes back to that we're really looking for companies that you can safely say that you know for every sale that the company makes, there is a unit of impact. And that can be mm -hmm. that for every sale, there is a CO2 emissions that are saved. Or if we invest in healthcare and well-being, that for every app download or for every transaction that actually this person is feeling X percent better better than, than they felt before. For us, it's, it's really important to be able to link the sales of the company with a directly measurable unit uh, of impact, and, and we're extremely strict at doing that. And it is a big responsibility uh, of, of the VCs to, especially the impact VCs, to be uh, strict about how they measure the impact, how they assess about impact, but also to be proactive in solving issues at the board level if they see that something is not going uh, the right way. Mm -hmm. And maybe also seeing then the impact of the VC as one that is societal, because um, famously venture capitalists uh, like to call themselves founder friendly. It's actually on the website of many of the leading venture capital firms in the world. So maybe it is more than founder friendly, it's society friendly. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Great, thank you. Um, Gaurav um, asks a question uh, for Mike. Academic surveys say we measure the wrong metrics to scale the happiness levels. Organizations are always late in measurement. Um, if Mike could please describe what kind of metrics are used by the Happiness Research Institute to measure happiness and if they show the true degree. Okay, so th there is a lot of questions there. Um, 
I think we, we measure the, or we use the wrong metrics in measuring progress as societies. I mean, we've been talking about this for the past 60 years that GDP per capita doesn't measure what people care about in terms of well-being and quality of life. Uh, it so measures the, the divorce lawyers, right? True. <laughs> the work that the divorce lawyers are doing is, is measured in there. True. Yeah. Then, then, then he, he asked about one, one issue in happiness research and research in general is, you know, can people remember how happy they were at a given point in time? Um, we can bypass that when we are using uh, people's phones and ask them in the moment how happy they feel right now. So there's a, a really cool study under London School of Economics uh, in the UK where um, I think it's 160,000 uh, people have been followed over time by using their phones and asked how happy do you feel right now uh, one, two or three times a day. And also combining that actually with the GPS data from the phones so you can see where are people when they're actually uh, feeling uh, the happiest um, and, and unhappiest. And, and unfortunately, people feel not so happy at work and happy at home, and, and especially happy when they're in, in, in green areas or in, in natural environments. So, so we can actually bypass the issue of, um, of memory. And then the, the sort of third element to the, to the question, what kind of measures do we use? We, we use a lot of different metrics. We use the metric that is used in the World Happiness Report which is a uh, question around satisfaction with life, or imagine how uh, the worst possible life you could live and the best possible life you could live on a scale from zero to 10, where do you feel you stand right now? That's used in the, in the World Happiness Report. We also use that. You can use a, a, a battery of questions called the uh, PANES scale, the positive and negative effects scale, which looks at 10 positive and 10 negative emotions. Uh, that people have experienced today or, or yesterday. Uh, you can ask about self-esteem, you can ask about uh, loneliness, uh, 20 different questions around uh, the, the different elements of, of loneliness. So we use a lot of different um, questions, we use a lot of different metrics to, to understand happiness from different angles. And, and I think that's key to me, that the, the good life has a lot of different ingredients on it, uh, on, uh, in it. It's about connection with other people. It's about uh, having a sense of purpose and meaning in life. It's about also enjoying pleasure on a daily basis in terms of good food and good company. Um, so, 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 so happiness um, is a, a complex, complex dish with a lot of ingredients in it, and we're trying to sort of quantify all those different elements. Uh, Agathe, we have, by the way, we have five minutes left. Um, so if there's rapid fire questions from the audience, I can uh, do those in a rapid fire, uh, fast way. Um, there's one question that unfortunately got deleted from the chat, but I think I remember it uh, somewhat from uh, Karen. Um, Agathe, uh, to what degree does your approach vary when it comes to very nascent technologies um, that ultimately may have uh, impact only further down the line um, versus maybe some of the ideas uh, that show um, a more immediate impact? Uh, I guess I, I, I hope that I understand the question correctly. I, mean, I have it again. I can also read you the actual question. Okay. Uh, it, it, it appeared back. Um, how does your investment assessment approach 
vary when considering investing in very nascent high-risk technology. Some business propositions can demonstrate more immediate impact, but some may take many years to manifest. Do you shift your measurement approach over time? Yeah, no, I mean, there definitely are a lot of breakthrough innovative technologies that are in R&D phase and in, in research labs. And of course, the commercialization for those could be still five, 10 years away. But if they want, were to become commercial, then the impact potential would be absolutely huge. So we would still look at them as as, uh, as as incredibly powerful impact companies where we just need to be patient and, and where we need to let the research run its course uh, in order to be able to launch the product. Having said that, we would not invest in, in companies, let's say that you know today we don't really think that the company is generating impact, but then one day it could be. That wouldn't be good enough for us. Like We want to have a very crystal clear thesis on the impact today. Um, but when it comes to high risk, high reward uh, technology investments, um, it's, it's again, uh, I don't think that there is an issue in, in uh, identifying what is the impact potential of this company if it was to come to market scale and commercialize. Mm -hmm. Okay, rapid fire questions. Um, two for um, Mike, two quick ones. One on COVID, on happiness and well-being. Um, in the short term, I think you talked about uh, the effects, what we see you know, directly from, um, from this terrible uh, pandemic. Um, what do you think is sort of the long-term lasting, and we have a German word here, which is Rückbesinnung, and I tried to find an English equivalent, I couldn't, um, but heck kommst? Um, I think, I don't know if that uh, you know, resonates with you, but basically the sort of the revisit to what matters. Like, do you, do you see sort of a long-term trend um, towards um, people that can make GBP positive from the pandemic where people start to revisit maybe the traditional values and virtues um, that may ultimately make us more happy? Uh, and then the final question for you, um, what type of happiness data do you wish you had? And does Facebook or Google have it? <laughs> <laughs> so the first question, um, my hope is that the long-term effect of this will be a sense of sort of gratitude for the everyday. And also, as you described, maybe we, we found out actually what actually matters to us. I think um, a lot of us just miss seeing our friends and families, uh, miss giving each other a, a hug, um, things that are, are, are free. Um, and, and hopefully when we are on the other side, we will remember uh, and, and not to the same degree take for granted uh, all the wonderful things in life that, that we can actually uh, enjoy, whether we are rich or poor. Um, so, 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 so that's my hope uh, for, for the sort of aftermath uh, in, in terms of happiness and, and the pandemic. Um, <laughs> what kind of data do I wish we had? Um, so, and do Google and Facebook have it? <laughs> I, I don't know about the last one, but but I mean, my, my hope is actually parallel with 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 what OECD proposed that that we will build in life satisfaction questions in every survey we do, combined with actually more objective metrics, where we can uh, we can see how that works together with um, subjective well-being. There are some pockets. Uh, around the world, um, in, in the northern part of, of Denmark, we have really, really good metrics combined also with sort of um, 
the central data register of people living in that region on health and also life satisfaction and, and many different factors. Um, but but my, my hope is that we would have a, a, a much larger uh, data set uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in the same I, I don't think Facebook has those. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And I got it. Two rapid fire questions for you. Um, one from Lawrence. I think we may have touched upon it, but maybe there's something to add. How do you make sure your portfolio companies are not distracted by their vision to an unhealthy extent? Example, Ther Theranos. Um, good, impactful idea, but bad outcome. Uh, and then lastly, do you believe sustainability will eventually permeate all capital? Will it? Will all investors embrace it? Yeah. Um, so, sort of on the question on on distraction, um, you know, the number one reason that really early stage startups fail is because of inability to focus and and really nail down what are the key uh, key performance indicators that I need to achieve today. That they just get too distracted by chasing too many opportunities. And in the end of the day, when you have limited resources, you have to be brutal about your prioritization, and you really need to ask yourself, what do I need to achieve today in order to survive? tomorrow. And the same goes for impact. I mean, one interesting um, kind of, I guess, to, sorry, not, not really being a fire question, but <laughs> just, just, just being super brief was that, that, that sometimes because the founders just want to, uh, you know, spread their solution to as many people as possible, but at the cost of not having a sustainable business model. And then again, it's going back to, okay, if you want to be there in the long term, grow one step at a time. And as long as you keep on delivering, you're going to be able to really spread your solution all around the world. So extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I forgot, what was the other question? And, and the second, whether sustainability, do you think all investors will ultimately end up embracing sustainability? I think so. I think for the mainstream majority investors, sustainability, sustainability be one of the dimensions how they'll assess uh, assess investments, and I think that's going to be case hopefully for ninety percent of investors in the future. Having said that, I think there will still be the ten percent of investors who will try to just make a quick profit and will still go into gambling or, or other things that are clearly not not good for for anyone. But there will always be, I think, unfortunately, a very small percentage that will be profit opportunistic. But hopefully 90% 90, 90 will be good enough uh, to, to land us in a better place. <laughs> thank you so much uh, to both of you. I want to thank everybody who came and showed up today and all the great questions. Um, thanks also, of course, to our partners at Leaves Babaya, Jürgen and Karen. Thanks to the production agency, uh, Optimist, Meg and her team and for all the work that uh, they put in. Uh, thanks to Brit um, for the great moderation of uh, the previous uh, recorded conversation. Uh, thanks to Mike Nagate um, once again. We will share the recording of all of it on all the different channels. You'll also find it on the Leaps by Bayer YouTube channel. Um, and uh, we will be releasing it uh, in podcast form um, on tour on air podcast. And we will also, as mentioned before, uh, share the report so people can dive a little bit deeper into the actual metrics. Um, and how you measured it. I think that's it. That's a wrap. Um, thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Thank you all. And thank you, Nico. Thanks. Bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to not miss out on our next episodes where we'll be sharing more unquarantined ideas and learnings from leaders across the field. We are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Castro, Overcast and Spotify. And many thanks to Leaps by Bayer, Mike Viking, Agathe Freiman and Britt Ray for sharing their knowledge and ideas with all of us. Thank you.